You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. It was 1983. It was a hot summer Monday afternoon in Arlington, Texas. 11-year-old Julie Fuller was getting ready for a special family dinner. The Fullers, an English family, were staying at the Kensington Manor Lodge and Apartments, which was really just a seedy motel despite the lofty name. It was temporary housing while they looked for a more permanent residence. In fact, that night, they were celebrating an impending closure on a new house. As she was getting dinner ready, Julie's mom asked her to take the kitchen trash out to the dumpster behind the motel. The agreeable girl grabbed up the trash bag and headed outside. It was just a short, straightforward walk to the dumpster. The chore should have taken just one or two minutes, but Julie never came back. After a little while, her mom went outside to look for her. I don't know if she assumed Julie got distracted, maybe ending up at the complex pool or chatting with another child. But Julie was nowhere to be seen. I can't imagine what it felt like when that moment of dread kicked in. At 6 o'clock p.m. on June 27th, Julie's dad, Colin, called the Arlington police, who responded quickly to the report of a missing child. Her parents described Julie, 11 years old, white, thin build, reddish, long hair, green eyes, English accent. She was wearing a white skirt and a white blouse. Officers started scouring the area for Julie. About 30 residents of the Kensington gathered and started a civilian ground search, despite the pouring rain. Colin got in a car driven by another dad staying at the motel, a Bill Howell, who drove him around the area looking for his missing little girl. Janet and Colin quickly assembled and placed missing girl flyers all around the motel. They madly searched for Julie with the help of other motel residents until about 3 a.m. on Tuesday when they exhaustedly returned to their room to wait for the police to find her. Julie's brother Lee later recalled being kind of mad at his sister, at least in the initial hours of her being missing. He told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, quote, At first, we thought she was in one of the other apartments. We were walking up and down looking for her. I remember walking around saying, I'm going to kill her. I was annoyed we couldn't find her. Miles away, late in the morning of Tuesday, June 28th, Three construction workers named Steve, Mickey, and Ivan pulled their work truck off the 200 block of Handley-Eaterville Road in Fort Worth to eat their lunch. They parked at the scenic, shady Trinity River Bridge. While the others were eating, Mickey got out of the truck. The report doesn't say this, but I'd imagine he needed to pee. He walked to a spot 30 feet north of the end of the bridge and stepped a little ways into the weedy underbrush. And then he stopped in his tracks. 
Mickey rushed back to the truck and told Steve and Ivan that he thought there was a body laying over there. Steve and Ivan were skeptical. They thought he was pulling their leg. At his insistence, they got out and walked over to the spot Mickey was gesturing to. At 11.50 a.m., a call came in to the Fort Worth Police Department. The caller was a clerk at the Quickie Mart convenience store, and he reported that some folks had just found a body lying off Handley Eaterville Road. Officer R. McDonald heard the radio call and turned his cruiser in the direction of the Trinity River Bridge. When he arrived at 6300 Randall Mill Road, the manager of the Quickie Mart pointed Officer McDonald in the direction of the bridge. Mickey, Ivan, and Steve were waiting for him. They directed the officer to a deep ditch 30 feet north of the end of the bridge, and there, lying in heavy weeds on the edge of the woods, lay the body of a child. At this point, Officer Jay Coburn, who also heard the radio call, arrived at the scene as well. The two officers secured the scene and called in additional units, including the crime scene detail, homicide, a medical investigator, and a supervising officer. CSSU crime scene investigator Stone photographed the scene, and a police chopper flew overhead, snapping aerial photos to document the layout of the area. Bill Cole, who would become the lead homicide investigator on the case for the Fort Worth Police Department, soon arrived as well. The child's body was not visible from the road. Once the officers stepped into the brush, they could see she lay on her back, her face obscured by the weeds she had been tossed into. She was naked. Officers at the scene observed a bruise on the girl's face and more bruises on her throat. Scratches on her back and posterior appeared to have been made by the weedy underbrush she was found lying in, although she was partially lying on an old cushion as well. The medical examiner who arrived at 1235 pronounced the girl deceased. She was labeled a Jane Doe. Responding officer Parkey, the medical examiner's investigator, told the media that it appeared the girl had been tossed down the mildly sloped embankment. After the scene was documented with the few film-based photos they took back then, Parkey summoned Cunningham's morticians to pick up the body and transport it to the Tarrant County morgue. Ron Roysden of Cunningham carefully wrapped the girl in a white sheet and lifted her in his arms. He scaled the short embankment to the road and placed her in the transport van. It's not clear how quickly authorities put together the missing girl from Arlington and the dead girl found in Fort Worth. Local papers reported that, initially, the Fort Worth Police Department believed that the body was that of a 10-year-old girl who had been reported a runaway from a Southside Fort Worth motel. But inquiries revealed that that girl was safe and in the custody of Child Welfare Services. This from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, quote, Fort Worth Juvenile Division officers checked to see if the body matched that of any reported runaways from Fort Worth. Arlington police heard of the discovery and their description matched the girl, meaning Julie. Continuing the quote, Colin Fuller was notified and went to the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Morgue, where he positively identified his daughter, end quote. This was at 6.05 p.m. on Tuesday. The Fullers had gone from excitement about a new home in their new country to identifying their daughter's corpse at the morgue in 24 hours. Julie's brother Lee later told the Fort Worth Star Tribune that he remembers when his dad came home from the morgue. He screamed like a wounded animal and pulled Lee and Janet onto the bed in a bear hug, crying as he told them, it is Julie. Dr. Nizam Pirwani, the chief Tarrant County medical examiner, conducted the autopsy on Julie on June 29th 
at 11.45 a.m. She measured at 57.5 inches tall and weighed 75 pounds. Julie had abrasions on her back consistent with the foliage she was thrown into, as well as dirt, twigs, and leaves on her skin. She also had an abrasion on the bridge of her nose that indicated she might have been struck. She had all the signs of strangulation. Contusions and abrasions on her throat, particularly in the thyroid area and left anterior neck, petechial hemorrhage, laryngeal edema, and pulmonary vascular congestion. Dr. Pirwani's final pathological diagnosis, Julie, was strangled. The cause of death was asphyxiation due to manual strangulation. Manner of death? Homicide. The doctor noted blood in Julie's genital region. She had a one-centimeter tear in the vaginal wall and a torn hymen with significant amounts of blood in the vaginal vault. The medical examiner also detected a non-dried lubricant material. Dr. Pirwani came to the obvious conclusion that Julie had been raped, and that was before her death. There was no food in Julie's stomach or bowel. Dr. Pirwani collected fingernail clippings from both hands. Samples from the sexual assault kit were also placed into evidence, as was blood collected from Julie's cardiac sac that would later be used to prepare a DNA profile for her for comparison purposes. The Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office stated that they estimated the girl was dead by 10 p.m. on Monday. Police believe she was killed elsewhere and dumped where she was found, near the quaint Trinity River Bridge on a scenic rural road. Hi, DNA ID listeners. Well, Season 3 proved to be the charm. DNA ID has been selected as one of 50 awesome true crime podcasts represented on Podcast Row at CrimeCon. What that means is that I will be there in person to meet and greet our listeners and thank you all for making DNA ID a success. Now, this is important, so listen carefully. I want you all to come to CrimeCon 2023, taking place in Orlando, Florida, on September 22nd to 24th. I've been to CrimeCon as an attendee twice, and believe me, it really is worth it. Last year, I sat in on talks by Paul Holes, Dr. Henry Lee, John Ramsey, the Delphi families, and many, many more. Not only is it three days of incredible panels, presentations, demonstrations, and activities relating to all things true crime, but all your favorite podcasters will be on Podcast Row waiting to take a selfie with you. Speaking of Podcast Row, here's the important part. When you go to sign up to attend CrimeCon as an attendee, you must use our special code in order to score 10% off your badge price. That's quite a savings. And when you use this code, CrimeCon tracks those numbers to determine how many listeners of the show attend, which really helps our chances for returning to Podcast Row next year. So go to CrimeCon.com, find the link to Orlando 2023, and click on Register. Fill out all the fields, select your badge level, and be sure to enter DNAID, just those five letters, no spaces, into the coupon code slash voucher box for 10% savings. If you're springing for a VIP badge, you can't use the code, but we still get credit for your attendance if you answer the How Did You Hear About CrimeCon field on the registration page by writing in DNA ID. I'll see you there. Look for me at the DNA ID table on Podcast Row, and thanks for listening. So who was Julie Fuller? Julie was born in Stanford, La Hope, Essex, England, on May 22, 1972. She lived with older brother Lee and parents Janet and Colin 
at 1A Coombe Rise and went to the local school of Abbotts Hall. Her father, Colin, was a native of Texas and had many relatives in the Fort Worth area. He was a trained electrician. He had spent some time in the U.S. during the year prior, 1982, working on a contract basis as an electrical engineer at CPI Electrics in Grand Prairie. He then returned to the U.K. and his family, but his goal was to relocate his family to the U.S. About six weeks before Julie's death in July 1983, Colin had returned stateside and taken a permanent job at CPI. He sent for his family, and they made arrangements for Janet and the kids to follow him to Texas. They arrived just three weeks before Julie's abduction and murder. The family of four moved into the Kensington Motel while Janet and Colin looked for a house to buy. Colin had just cleared his first paycheck, and they were due to sign the papers on a house on the evening Julie went missing. They had planned a special family dinner and then a drive over to check the new place out. That day, Julie spent the day at the motel pool. Then she dressed up in her white blouse and skirt ensemble. But instead of a celebratory dinner and signing ceremony, Julie disappeared, and the Fullers would never buy that house. After Colin identified Julie's body at the morgue, the dazed Fullers quickly left the Kensington and went to stay with a family friend in Arlington. The Austin American Statesman did a terrific article on Julie that really brought her to life. It says that in her three short weeks of life in the United States, she was in awe of all the towering buildings she saw in Fort Worth, she adored American fast food and was obsessed with the drive through and she found the American accent very amusing. She was most excited about going to a new school where she didn't have to wear a uniform. She had made a new best friend at the motel pool, a 10-year-old Sharon Reese, whose mother Cynthia said of Julie, quote, She was a happy-go-lucky child, well-mannered. She was crazy about America because it was so different. She taught the other kids to do handstands and flips off the side of the pool, end quote. Linda McClure, a friend of the Fullers who sheltered the mourning family in her home after the tragedy, said of Julie, quote, She was a sweet, gentle little girl who loved little girl things, teddy bears and dolls. She was a unique child since she had just come from England. She was a little more polite than other children, end quote. Linda said that Lee, Julie's 13-year-old brother, was beside himself. Much later, he would give interviews saying that he was too lazy to take the trash out when his mom requested that they do it. So he let his little sister go to the dumpster. He just sat and watched American TV. In short, he blamed himself. Meanwhile, Linda said, quote, Her mother is not recognizable. She's in shock. He's in shock, too. I won't let them be interviewed. Colin did tell the Fort Worth Star Tribune that the family was holding up as well as could be expected. But the soundbite printed by most of the news media back then was Colin's blunt assertion that, quote, the American dream is a nightmare. With their young daughter Julie surviving less than a month on American soil, how could the Fullers feel anything other than disillusioned by America and resentful of its abruptly shattered promise? Moore Funeral Home of Arlington donated the funeral expenses so a service could be held for Julie. It was attended by about 80 people, many of whom were British citizens like the Fullers. There was a large UK expat population in the area, and it was mobilized by the Carter family to turn out to support the Fullers. The Reverend presiding over the service, who was aptly named M.P. Bishop, called Julie's killer warped, twisted, and sick. Julie's parents were visibly distraught and physically supported each other and Lee throughout the service. 
After the service, Julie was buried in Moore Memorial Garden Cemetery in Arlington. I do feel obligated to mention that the original police reports from back in 1983 contain some quite confusing information that Colin was determined to have a girlfriend on the side. It's not known whether she was someone he met in 1982 when he was temporarily working in Texas or what. It doesn't appear that the original investigators interviewed this woman, but it was a sign that all was not right in the Fullers' marriage, and Julie's death was another blow to an already faltering bond between Colin and Janet. They later divorced after they returned to England. Crime scene photos of the place where Julie's body was found were really helpful for me to understand the scene. It was approximately seven or eight miles from the Kensington Motel to the Trinity River Bridge in northeast Fort Worth. The bridge is a very small, picturesque two-lane bridge traversing, guess what, the Trinity River. It's not a large bridge over a mammoth waterway like one sees in cities. Think country road bridge over a river tributary, not the Golden Gate. About 25 to 30 feet off the end of the bridge, Julie's body lay about 10 feet down the embankment leading to the river below. The embankment was wooded and overgrown, and as we heard, Julie lay among tall, weedy brush, sort of halfway on what looks like a couch cushion. I found it interesting that whoever dumped Julie there did not hurl her over the bridge railing into the water below. If they had, she might have been carried downstream and the police would have no idea where she entered the water. Instead, her killer discarded her in the bushes, allowing gravity to help him a little as she spilled headfirst down the embankment. Julie was naked, her legs closest to the roadway bent at the knees, and with her left one tucked slightly under her to the right. Both skinny, pale arms are splayed out overhead as if she had flung them wide. Her head, pointing downhill, was tipped back, mouth open with reddish-brown hair tumbled all over her face. No clothing was found at the scene. While investigators were still on the scene looking for tire tracks, marks in the dirt, Julie's clothing, and so on, a man named Mark Roach pulled up in his vehicle. He told the investigators that that morning, between 8 and 8.15 a.m., he saw a late-model pickup parked at that spot in the road. Unfortunately, he couldn't remember the color of the truck or anything about it. But police noted, pickup truck seen at dump site. The cushion found partially under Julie's body was collected and subjected to testing over the years. Police have come to believe that it is not connected to Julie's case and was not placed there by her killer. It was just a piece of garbage among the litter in the area, and its presence there preceded Julie's. Let's talk a little bit about the motel where Julie was staying with her family. The Kensington, now called the Budget Stay Suites, was situated at 1220 West Division Street in Arlington. It sat on a small triangle of land formed by Main Street, West Division Street, and South Davis Drive. The motel was described as housing two different types of people. One subset of residents was people just like the Fullers, people visiting town, people between homes, families who needed an affordable place to live on a temporary basis. But the other element was less desirable. Actually, not desirable at all. One Fort Worth police officer working the case famously said of the motel, quote, I would not turn my back out there at night, end quote. And the Fullers could not have known this, since they selected the motel out of necessity and budgetary concerns, without knowing much about the area and without the benefit of reviews on TripAdvisor. The Kensington was seedy, run-down, and frequented by some quite shady people. In fact, when police were scouring the motel for any sign of Julie, 
A motel employee told the officers that he had noticed a strong smell of chemicals coming from room 102. Police checked that unit and found it had been vacated the night before. But they noted that it seemed the motel room had been used as a makeshift meth lab. They didn't have any reason to think that this operation had anything to do with Julie, but they did track down the guy who rented room 102, a guy named Little Page, and noted that he drove a 1975 Ford pickup truck. He had a record and was up to no good during his stay at the Kensington. He went on the person of interest list. Despite the fact that they were living among meth manufacturers and other unsavory folks, Julie's abduction and murder was next level and caused a ripple of fear through the Kensington residents. Cynthia Reese told the statesman, quote, We are all afraid it is someone at the motel. We think Julie knew whoever it was. Of course, police searched the dumpsters behind the Kensington Motel since that's where Julie had been headed. The dumpsters were 200 feet from the room the Fullers were staying in. Police were particularly interested in locating Julie's clothing. But all they found was the trash that she herself had deposited there before disappearing. That told them that Julie had made it to the dumpster, but did not tell them what had happened to her after that. Police searched those dumpsters three times in hopes that a killer in residence would become complacent that they had already been searched and would feel free to discard some evidence. But it didn't happen. Bill Howell, the Kensington resident who had driven Colin Fuller around looking for Julie, said everyone was looking for her. Quote, I must have gone through that dumpster twice myself. Everybody is scared for their kids now, and they're watching them pretty close. I'm never going to forget the mother standing here this morning saying, I want my baby back over and over, Bill said. Police spent days after Julie was found canvassing residents of the motel. They compiled a list of people who were staying at the Kensington at the time and ran down everyone in each of the rooms. They asked residents if they'd seen a child with a man or seen a child who could be Julie at all. Julie had spent the day at the motel pool and many had seen her there, and some had seen her that evening too. In fact, Fort Worth Detective J. O. Rutledge said residents reported seeing Julie in bare feet, wearing a white blouse and a white skirt. She walked by the motel pool on her way to the dumpster at about 6 p.m. on Monday. Rutledge said, quote, She had no reason to leave on her own because her father told us he was coming to pick them up at 7 p.m. We were told that he had just signed the papers on a house. Then they found a young friend of Julie's who was able to help them out with the timeline. The friend had walked with Julie to drop off the trash in the dumpster at the back of the building. They found that first dumpster full, so they walked to a second dumpster. Julie put the trash in, and her friend left her there. She didn't see what happened to Julie after that. On the 28th, Arlington police officer Donnie Abrams was assigned to patrol West Division and West Randall Mill Roads. He was canvassing the neighborhood, seeking any witnesses who might have seen Julie or anything that could aid in their investigation. Around 3.30 p.m., he spoke to a waitress at the Seasons restaurant in the 2400 block of West Division. This was Marie Stone. She was a resident at the Fielder Square Apartments, but had moved from the Kensington just two weeks earlier. When he asked her if she had seen a white little girl about 11 years old with a strong English accent, she knew exactly who he was talking about. Marie had little kids of her own, and her family had lived at the Kensington until two weeks before. She and her kids and their teenage babysitter had all met Julie there. She described Julie as level-headed and very polite. 
Marie said that she had, in fact, seen Julie with a white boy about 12 to 15 years old with brown hair wearing a blue swimsuit. Marie said that Julie and the boy were standing talking by the South Pool at the Fielder Square Apartments. Marie told Officer Abrams that Julie was wearing a white dress. Abrams noted in his report that Marie seemed to know what Julie was wearing that evening, so her report was likely accurate. Officer Abrams went to the Fielder Square Apartments and spoke with Marie's babysitter, a 17-year-old boy named Jim Kay. Jim said he saw Julie the night before on the 27th, around 7 p.m., at the apartment building pool. Marie's kids, who were only two and three, did not have anything to add. In hindsight, police don't believe Jim's report to be accurate. Julie disappeared close to six, and she was not the type of child to wander to a neighboring pool when her family was expecting her for dinner. So even though they did have some reported sightings of Julie, they really weren't that helpful. No one reported that she had any interaction with any suspicious males. Police came to the conclusion that Julie had likely been abducted at the motel and killed elsewhere. Because she was abducted in Arlington and found in Fort Worth, both police agencies investigated the crime. Fort Worth police canvassed the area where the body was found to ask if residents and business owners had seen anything. One witness, Linda P., lived in a trailer behind the Quickie Mart. This was the convenience store where the three guys who found Julie used the phone to call police. Linda managed a local liquor store, Sandy's. She told the investigating officers that around 9.30 the night of the abduction, she came out the front door of her trailer and saw a small station wagon parked near the intersection of Handley Eaterville Road and Randall Mill Road, right next to the Quickie Mart. This vehicle was occupied by a white male wearing a dark hat. At this time, she observed a young white female get into the vehicle, and the two were arguing. Linda hollered at the driver, Can I help you? The vehicle then sped away at a high rate of speed northbound on Handley Eaterville Road. Linda was shown a photo of Julie to see if she was the little girl she saw arguing with the man in the station wagon. Linda said Julie was not the girl she saw and her clothing was different. But police took note of Linda's report nonetheless in case something else came up about a station wagon. Then there was witness Lorraine H. She was driving south on Handley Eaterville Road at 9 p.m. Monday night, June 27th. She observed a blue Ford pickup, 69 to 73 model year, parked on the north side of the bridge almost at the river. Lorraine spoke to a friend who drove by the same spot at 4.30 the next morning, and the friend told her the truck was not there at that time. Lorraine made a report to an officer Horn about this sighting. So police had two jurisdictions, two potential vehicles, and multiple supposed sightings of Julie, but no witnesses to her abduction. On the 30th, police stated publicly that they had no suspects and very little to go on. A reward fund was established by the Bank of Arlington, whose employees donated $500 matched by the bank. A local dairy offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to the killer, and an anonymous donor offered another $5,000. The total reward fund amounted to $11,000 within a week of Julie's murder. That's about $80,000 in today's money. Another fund was established by a resident of the Kensington Motel. It was designed to meet the Fuller family's immediate needs. And soon, hundreds of dollars had been accumulated in the account. Lots of people dropped off food and supplies at the Kensington to benefit the Fullers as well. Colin went back to work after eight days. I can only imagine how Janet managed to spend her days. 
She was brand new to the country and had devoted her life to being a stay-at-home mom to her children. Now she was left with just one child, no home, and a giant void in her life. Colin told the Fort Worth Star Tribune, quote, One minute she seems okay, and then the next minute she's not. It must have been overwhelming for the Fullers. The Fort Worth Star Tribune quoted Fort Worth Port Police Homicide Lieutenant Tommy Swan, saying that the Fuller slaying had attracted interest from all across the U.S. and the world. The publication reported that child murders in Fort Worth were rare, and the vast majority of the few that occurred were domestic-related. Julie's case was an enigma. A week after the murder, Lieutenant Swan told the Tribune, quote, We are continuing the investigation, and at this time, we have nothing significant we are ready to release, end quote. Then, suddenly, two and a half weeks after the murder, with police lamenting that they had no suspects and very few leads, there was a big development in the case, the biggest. A man confessed to police that he was Julie's killer. On July 8th, Quana, Texas police arrested a man who had caused a disturbance on a trailways bus in Quana, which is about 200 miles northwest of Fort Worth. This was a pedophile named Wallace Ray Williams. The guy was drunk and disorderly, basically, and police were called after he was forcibly put off the bus in Quana. Williams had boarded the trailways bus in Fort Worth. He was arrested and charged with public intoxication when it was discovered he was on parole in California, and that, quote, Williams' record shows numerous charges of sexual abuse of children under the age of 14 in California, end quote, that per the Quana Tribune. That night, around 9.30 p.m., Williams was yelling from his cell that he wanted an officer. Quana Police Chief Skip Cargyle heard Williams yelling. He went to him and asked what he wanted. Williams said that he was going to make him famous and then volunteered that he had killed the English girl in Arlington who had been abducted while taking out the trash. Cargill telephoned the APD to ask if they indeed had a murder little girl. They did. Arlington and Fort Worth investigators hightailed it to Quana and interrogated Williams in the jail there. Having sobered up, Williams retracted his story, saying it was all just drunk talk. They weren't satisfied with his retraction and charged him in Julie's murder. He was arraigned and then escorted back to Fort Worth, where he voluntarily took a polygraph and was subjected to hair, saliva, and blood tests to see if he was connected to the crime. According to the reporting at the time, the tests of his bodily fluids were able to determine if his blood characteristics matched those of Julie's rapist. By July 12th, Arlington Police Sergeant Hugh Atwell told the media that Williams was no longer a suspect in the slaying of Julie Fuller. He declined to comment on the results of the polygraph and the testing, referring the media to the Fort Worth PD, who did not want to comment. Williams was released with no charges. So Williams was a bust. By the end of July 1983, Crime Stoppers was offering a $1,000 reward for tips. Blurbs in the newspaper advertising the rewards stated that Fort Worth homicide detectives had exhausted all leads in the case. Bill Cole, the lead investigator for the Fort Worth PD, later said, quote, I don't know anything else we could have done, end quote. By late September, the Fullers had already returned to England. Even though they had sold all their earthly possessions there to make a fresh start in America, they felt that their stateside experiment was a horrific failure that essentially ruined their lives. Newspaper articles described the family as very bitter and disillusioned that the American authorities had made no headway on finding a suspect in the case. They also found the American customs of everyone bringing over food, gathering to show support, and sending checks and money to be very bewildering. 
Colin in particular was uncomfortable with, and some even said offended by, this idea of accepting charity from well-meaning strangers. One of his countrymen cited the cliched British stiff upper lip when trying to explain how the Fullers were off-put by these gestures. Colin also didn't really understand how the American police work, and as a bereaved father, he felt he was entitled to be constantly informed of developments. It got to the point that he was calling the Fort Worth Police Department three times a day to ask for updates. One or two detectives investigating Julie's case said the calls were interfering with their work. Reportedly, Colin felt that he was receiving an unsatisfactory amount of information, and he was also angry and confused as to why he'd been asked to take a polygraph. Police assurances that it was routine did not assuage his anger. And he probably didn't know, and it's just as well, that Fort Worth police asked Scotland Yard for a background check on Colin. Fort Worth Detective Larry Steffler told the Tribune, quote, What are you going to do? We can't manufacture a suspect or leads. I don't think we missed anything. I know he wasn't happy, end quote. Colin said that he began to question whether every man who walked by could be the killer. With letters of condolence arriving from all over the world and people stopping by to check on them constantly, the family was subjected to daily reminders of their grief. It was too much. Despite Julie's mom not wanting to leave her daughter's burial place, the pull of home was a greater urge. Back to the UK, they went. Lee said later that he always kind of blamed his dad irrationally for Julie's death. If it weren't for him taking the job in America, Julie would be alive and their life would be normal. The rewards offered in Julie's case remained unclaimed. In September 1984, homicide investigator A.J. Tiroff said, quote, We haven't had a ripple. He said detectives were sure to investigate any similar rapes of young girls in the region. For example, police talked to a man arrested in Hearst on charges that he had raped a number of young girls. Fort Worth police questioned this man in jail but ruled him out. Detective O'Brien told me that after Julie's murder, they looked at every single guy who was arrested in connection to the rape and or murder of a child, even those outside the state of Texas, desperately seeking a connection that might shed some light on her case. In 1984, Fort Worth investigators took a look at another guy who they thought might have been involved in Julie's case because of a similar crime in which he molested and tried to kill a young girl. Doyle Wayne Newsom lived in the 3000 block of Rodeo Street in Fort Worth. On Thursday, March 9, 1984, he abducted a 10-year-old girl named Tracy. Newsom lived in her neighborhood and was the uncle of another little girl Tracy was friends with. Every day, he would drive his own niece, Tracy, and Tracy's older sister to school. This is a quote from an article in the Dallas Morning News. The victim's mother said she had never met the man, meaning Newsom, but trusted him. Quote, my oldest daughter said he was a nice man, end quote. I'm certain that Newsom engineered that entire situation so he could have access to Tracy and groomed her so he could assault her. He had pleaded guilty in Oregon in 1980 for sodomizing a child and had violated his probation there by leaving the state. No doubt this was all unbeknownst to Tracy's mom. Maybe she wouldn't have been so trusting had she known Newsom's background. Anyway, on the 9th, Newsom dropped the other two girls at school and drove off with his intended victim. He sexually assaulted Tracy. He then beat her and, assuming she was dead, dumped her in a field in Hearst. But the brave little girl didn't die. She survived, outside in the field overnight, 
By the next evening, Friday, she was able to walk to a nearby convenience store, bleeding from a big gash in her head that turned out to be a skull fracture. She said, "I want my mama." The store clerk recognized her from news reports of an abducted child and called police right around 7 p.m. A customer who was in the store said that the child had blood and cuts all over her and a black eye. Tracy was able to identify Newsom to police as her attacker since she knew him. On the night of March 10th, about 15 police officers from Arlington and Fort Worth arrived at Newsom's motel room at the Value Inn at 821 North Watson Road to arrest him for aggravated sexual assault. But Newsom was not interested in going to prison and engaged police in a 2-hour standoff. After those 2 hours, he admitted to police negotiators that he had sexually assaulted Tracy. And then he shot himself in the head and died in the bathroom at 1:30 a.m. Police suspected Newsom and Julie's murder, which police spokesman Doug Clark termed quote the same type of assault. However, inquiries by detectives led them to believe that Newsom was in Oregon at the time that Julie was killed. He wasn't cleared, but he became less interesting to investigators. More on Newsom later. In November 1984, there was a big to-do when 13-year-old Michelle Tremier of North Richland Hills, Texas, was abducted and killed. Her body was found on the Roanoke Farm property of Mark Robert Mathis, a 23-year-old father and trucker with zero history of violence. While in the Denton County Jail as investigators searched his land, Mathis hung himself with his socks. Items found in his farmhouse were compared to the Julie Fuller case to see if there was any connection, but police wouldn't say what those items were. I suspect that they were pieces of little girl's clothing. Roanoke was a mere 30 miles from where Julie was abducted. One of the investigators on the Fort Worth PD, Detective Ken Watts, said he hoped that it was Mathis just to bring some closure to the Julie Fuller case, but it wasn't. Investigators found no link whatsoever between Mathis and Julie. Then in February 1986, the Christie Proctor case reverberated through the ranks of Julie's investigators because it had happened again. A young girl had vanished into thin air. and there were some startling similarities between Julie's case and Christie's. Christie Diane Proctor, age 9, was walking the 3 blocks home from a friend's apartment in Dallas. She set out around 6 p.m. Police believed that somewhere in that last block someone grabbed her. They had found a red Valentine's box Christie was carrying when she left her friends, and it was lying in the middle of Brook Green Street just outside her own apartment building. It had been crushed by a car. the same for a purple plastic heart with her name on it this part is so chilling christie's little friend had walked her about halfway home the girl told police that she saw a van parked nearby when the two parted ways and a neighbor who knew christie saw her walking toward home but when he drove by again after less than a minute she had vanished christie disappeared on saturday february 15 1986 She was finally found 2 years later in a field in Plano. Whoever took her did so with incredible stealth, practiced methodology, and lethal finality. And police are pretty sure they know who he is. Let's talk about David Elliot Penton. I'm not one to hyperbolize when it comes to discussing the killers I address on this show. I think if anything, the vast majority of them are disappointingly average, maybe even of subpar intelligence. opportunists who just acted on some atavistic impulse and got lucky but david penton was truly cunning organized cautious and calculating 
and he was also truly evil. Penton was born on February 19, 1958, and raised by a single mother after his father abandoned Penton, his sister, and his mom. When he was six months old, he was thrown out of a vehicle during a car crash. The impact left him in a coma, and his recovery was protracted. He started acting out in his teenage years, eventually failing out of high school and joining the Army. He served as a tank mechanic in the military for eight years, from 1977 to 1985, and was commended for his motivated performance. His first marriage to the daughter of a man his mother was married to failed. He was stationed in Korea for part of his time in the service, and he married a Korean woman and brought her back to the U.S. with him. He was stationed at Fort Hood. He and his wife had a daughter, and then in 1984 they had a son, Michael. On the Friday after Thanksgiving, November 23rd, two-month-old Michael Penton was home alone with his father when he suffered some kind of medical emergency. Penton called 911, and baby Michael was taken to the hospital. They were able to stabilize him and shipped him to Waco for more treatment, but he died within days. An autopsy by Dr. Robert Bucks, the medical examiner, concluded the following, quote, It is our opinion that Michael J. Penton, a two-month-old Caucasian male infant, died as a result of massive brain injuries, including bilateral acute subdural hematomas and extensive subarachnoid hemorrhages with ensuing brain death. In addition, small contusions were found on the posterior aspect of the scalp. These injuries most probably resulted when the infant's head was struck by a blunt object. Manner of death, homicide. End quote. Penton had killed his baby boy. He pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter, but somehow got out on bond while the case was appealed. I'm not sure how he was appealing a guilty plea or why he was allowed to walk around free, but anyway, he fled the state of Texas and was never again captured for the murder of his son. Four years later, in April 1988, Penton was arrested in Ohio for the March 31st abduction and rape murder of nine-year-old Nydra Ross in Columbus. Niger was found in a creek in Marion County six months later. Penton was friends with Niger's family and had spent the night with them in the hours before Niger vanished. A large amount of blood consistent with hers was found under the floor carpeting in Penton's van. He received a life sentence in that case. After he was convicted in Niger's case, Texas authorities, who knew he had spent time at Fort Hood and killed his son, started looking at Penton for three murders in their state because the cases were similar to Nigra's. All the three female child victims were sexually assaulted and strangled. A 1991 article says Texas authorities strongly suspected Penton, but lacked the evidence to charge him. While that changed when Penton's Ohio cellmates provided information he had admitted to them about the crimes. In January 2005, Penton pleaded guilty in Texas to the 1985 and 1987 kidnappings and murders of three girls five-year-old Christy Meeks, Roxanne Reyes, age three, and Christy Proctor. Roxanne was grabbed while she picked flowers outside her Garland apartment. A man lured her away from her playmates with candy. She was found six months later, about seven miles away. Christy Meeks was nabbed as she played outside with friends. Her body was found a hundred miles away at Lake Texoma. And as we know, Christy Proctor vanished from in front of her apartment building as a van idled nearby. Penton was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences for these crimes, although that was largely symbolic since he was most likely going to die in prison in Ohio. 
and he is suspected of many other crimes against children. The Columbus Dispatch reported that Penton allegedly attempted to kidnap three other young girls in the Dallas area and sexually assaulted another child. He is also the prime suspect in an abduction in Thorntown, Indiana. Six-year-old Shannon Sherrill was playing hide-and-seek with other kids in her family's Thorntown trailer park when she vanished on October 5, 1986. Shannon has never been found. And Ara Denise Johnson, known as Nisi, vanished from her bed in Big Sandy, Texas in 1986. Her family had just lost another child to drowning nine months before. Ara, too, has never been found. Penton's cellmates reported to authorities that Penton seemed to know quite a bit of information about Ara, mentioning her by name and knowing that she was taken from the tiny town of Big Sandy. Penton is also a suspect in the cases of Angelica Gandara, who vanished in 1985 at age 11, and Amber Crum, who was two when she was abducted in 1983. Penton has bragged to multiple prison buddies that he killed upwards of 50 children. Investigators believe his tally is more like 30. He didn't so much as lust after kids, he said, as find them more appealing because they were disease-free, unlike many of the sex workers he had frequented throughout his life. His M.O. was to get the kids into his van and keep them captive for days while he tortured them sexually. At least, that's what investigators believe. Penton came onto the radar of Julie Fuller's investigators in 2000. Penton, as we heard, had been convicted in Ohio and was serving life in prison there. On June 8, 2000, Fort Worth Police Chief Thomas Wyndham received a letter from a Jeffrey L. Sunnykalb, an inmate at the Warren Correctional Institute in Lebanon, Ohio. The letter says, quote, Dear Mr. Wyndham, I've been encouraged to contact your agency with respect to the above-listed child homicide. The child homicide listed above was Julie Fuller. The letter went on to say, quote, An individual who you may want to consider as a suspect in this matter is as follows, David Elliot Penton. And then it lists Penton's social security number and date of birth, which was February 9, 1958. The letter continues, quote, I have celled with this individual for a period of over three years and have become very familiar with his course of conduct. While in the state of Texas, this child, referring to Julie, was abducted from a hotel in Arlington and was placed in a trash dump after her death. Note this was largely correct. The weedy spot where Julie had been tossed also happened to contain some other garbage and seemed to be a spot that was commonly used for easy trash disposal. The letter continued, Quote, I believe if you reviewed the autopsy, this child was strangled and or asphyxiated, and both pre-mortem and post-mortem sexual activity were evidenced. The above-referenced suspect drove at the time of this incident a red maroon Jeep CJ7 and or a cream-white Chevrolet van with brown graphics and also had a gray Plymouth Fury, end quote. Esteemed FBI agent Howard Linscott worked some very significant cases in his career as a federal agent, including the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy. He penned an assessment of, of Penton. Here are the serial child predator's characteristics, according to Linscott. Sexual sadist. IQ of approximately 130. Performed well in the military with high scores and high performance ratings. Collector of pornography. Neat, methodical, and premeditated. Sets up the fantasy in his mind and acts when he finds a victim to fit it. Does not stalk the victim. Is opportunist. 
will record or videotape the act to repeat or reenact the fantasy over and over. Will dispose of the body in a pre-planned place, not haphazardly dump it. Into sadistic sex, most often anal sex and bondage, because his sexual thrill is the fear of the victim. Okay, please forgive me here for the outdated terminology and stereotyping, but the report says Penton likes Orientals because they are from a submissive society and will go along with bizarre sex acts as will children. It continues, does not strike regularly, spaces out, strikes. Was sexually abused as a child before age 10. Will go back and assist in a search almost to the point of assuming leadership. Will stay in close contact with the police to monitor the progress. When interviewed, will interrogate the interrogator on the progress of the investigation. Will not risk taking by kidnapping a victim who will resist. Will entice and lure them quietly away if others are around. Will not murder a victim after one sex act. Will take victim to a place where he feels secure enough to do it repeatedly. As a result of all this information about Penton, particularly that he seemed to be a child killer who operated in Texas during the relevant time frame, he became a suspect in the Julie Fuller case. I'll get back to him later. In 1996, another horrific child abduction happened in Arlington. Astute true crime followers will be able to guess what case I'm referring to, the infamous kidnapping and murder of Amber Hagerman. Amber was abducted within two and a half miles of where Julie was taken. Two and a half miles. This is all from the Fort Worth Star Tribune article in February 1996. Quote, When nine-year-old Amber Hagerman was pulled from her bicycle in East Arlington last month, Fort Worth Police Sergeant Paul Kratz immediately recalled 11-year-old Julie Fuller, who was abducted from an Arlington motel in 1983 and found slain in Fort Worth. It was one of the first ones I thought about, said Kratz, who worked on the Fuller case. Kratz pulled out the Julie Fuller case files to see if there were any similarities to the abduction and slaying of Amber Hagerman. But beyond the obvious, he said, there apparently is none. We kicked it around over here. There are very obvious similarities, but beyond the basic, there's not much, he said, end quote. The article also quoted retired Fort Worth homicide detective Bill Cole, who, you'll recall, was the lead Fort Worth PD investigator on Julie's case 13 years before Amber was abducted. As he pointed out, quote, it's tough when you don't have any physical evidence. That means you've got to have somebody say something or hope the idiot brags about it, end quote. Cole said he was still hopeful that the case would be solved. But in Julie's case, with none of her clothing found at the scene, no weapon, no tire tracks, no fingerprints, and no eyewitnesses, it must have seemed nearly hopeless to the 1980s-era investigators who had no idea what they had in the sexual assault kit. And J.O. Rutledge, a Fort Worth PD homicide investigator who worked on Julie's case, said that her case had even less to go on than Amber's. At least in Amber's case, there was an eyewitness who had seen a man in a black pickup truck take Amber. Rutledge said, quote, All police found was the trash that Julie took to the dumpster. When Amber's death came up, Kratz and I were talking about what could have been done if we had the technology available now. We never really had any good leads. Nobody saw her get taken, and there were a lot of transients living at that motel, end quote. Sergeant Kratz told the Fort Worth Star Tribune of Julie's case in 1996, quote, It's in a pending status. 
We worked a tremendous number of leads, but there's nothing more to do unless something similar happens and we pull it out and look at it, end quote. In other words, at that time, the Fuller investigation was in something of a holding pattern. Amber Hagerman's abduction and murder remains unsolved. Her case is the namesake of the Amber Alert, the national system for alerting citizens to a missing child who is suspected to have been abducted. I've learned that as of now, there is no suspect DNA profile in Amber's case, although investigators have not ruled out conducting additional testing. In 2005, semen taken from Julie's sexual assault kit was finally used to create an STR profile of Julie's killer. The profile was entered into the National CODIS database in August of that year, but there were no hits. This fact eliminated several people whose names had been under consideration over the years. Suspects who had made the list just by virtue of synergistic crimes, but whose DNA was already in the system. Other people who were considered suspects in the case who had never been conclusively ruled out could now be eliminated by direct DNA comparisons, people like Wallace Williams. This was the drunk guy on the bus who had confessed to Julie's murder but retracted his confession when he sobered up. The investigators back in 1983 had taken a blood sample from him, which was now used to compare his DNA to Julie's killer's. It wasn't a match. Williams had not been lying when he said he had lied about killing Julie. Fort Worth Detective Thomas O'Brien picked up the Fuller case in 2009. He spent years trying to rule out additional suspects in the case file. One of these was David Elliott Penton. Now, I'm sure you're thinking Penton's DNA must have been in CODIS. And it was, eventually. It was entered in Ohio after the state DNA database became operational. This was long after Penton had been placed at the top of the suspect list in Julie's case. But when Julie's killer's DNA was entered into CODIS in 2005, there was no hit to Penton. But Fort Worth investigators wanted to be really sure it wasn't him. They were concerned that maybe Ohio didn't have a good enough sample for Penton, or something else could have gone wrong to screw up the STR comparison. Basically, Penton looked so good for Julie's murder, they wanted a triple check. His DNA profile was on record in Texas because of the three girls he had pleaded guilty to murdering there. So they ran a direct comparison. In what must have been a real blow to the Fort Worth investigators, it wasn't a match. David Elliott Penton took lots of other little girls just like Julie, but he didn't take her. By the way, David Penton remains in prison in Ohio. He's up for parole in 2027. I can't imagine that he'll be released, but if he is, it's only to be sent to Texas to serve his sentence for the murders of the two Christies and Roxanne. Detective O'Brien worked for a decade to exclude a number of other potential suspects. These included men who were the subject of tips, men who were in the case file who had never been ruled out, men staying at the Kensington like Little Page, the meth chef, men who were arrested for sex crimes like indecent exposure and peeping, and so on. Julie's killer continued to elude the Fort Worth investigators. On March 12, 2012, Detective S.J. Waters received an email from Detective J.A. Hernandez, who had worked Julie's case in the past. Hernandez recommended looking again at the suspect Doyle Wayne Newsom. Newsom was the one who had kidnapped the girl he drove to school, the one who didn't die when he tried to kill her. He had been considered a suspect in Julie's death at the time, but detectives came to believe he was in Oregon at the time of her murder. But Detective O'Brien wanted to definitively exclude him because he checked a lot of boxes. He began a search for Newsom's blood that would have been collected at autopsy after his suicide. 
Newsom's blood card was finally located by a lab tech at the Fort Worth PD crime lab, and a direct comparison determined that Newsom hadn't killed Julie Fuller. Two other men who were definitively ruled out by DNA were Lee and Colin Fuller. It's a delicate matter to seek samples from family members of murder victims, as you can imagine. And it was very doubtful that Lee, as a quite young teen with no car, could have killed and transported his sister. But they had to be sure. Lee agreed to provide a sample of his DNA to Detective O'Brien. The Virginia State Police met with Lee Fuller at his home and conducted a buckle swab. And the comparison of the buckle swab to Julie's killer's DNA revealed that Lee Fuller was not the suspect, and YSTR testing also eliminated Colin Fuller as a suspect. Detective O'Brien said they were so desperate for a lead, they were even considering trying to get the killer's DNA to Interpol in the off chance that he was a UK relative or acquaintance of the Fullers. By 2013, it was time to move on to familial DNA searching. Texas is one of the states that utilizes this methodology under certain circumstances. Detective O'Brien prepared a written request for a familial search that stated, quote, The investigation of Julie Fuller's murder has been extensive and unproductive. With the exception of the DNA profile that was obtained from her body at autopsy, there was no other physical evidence. Julie's clothing was never recovered, and there are no witnesses to her disappearance. The complete DNA profile for the suspect has been in CODIS for eight years with no results. A familial search is needed at this point to expand the possibility of identifying a suspect. End quote. O'Brien's request was supported by Tarrant County Deputy Chief Assistant DA Robert Gill. The Fort Worth Police Department Crime Lab sent a sample of DNA from Julie's case to the Texas Department of Public Safety, or DPS. The DPS CODIS program manager issued a results letter dated September 18, 2014, to the Fort Worth Police Department Homicide Unit. It stated that as requested by that department, the Texas Department of Public Safety Crime Lab CODIS section had performed a familial search of the DNA profile from the Julie Fuller case. The profile was searched using a program designed to locate male individuals in the Texas CODIS database that could be related to the contributor of the DNA profile in the Fort Worth Police Department case. The search was conducted on June 18th and was compared against 734,683 offender profiles. Approximately six YSTR loci were examined, and none of the candidates listed were consistent with the YSTR profile in evidence. The familial search was a dead end. A few short years later, the Fort Worth Police Department decided to employ phenotyping technology to help narrow down their suspect pool. The department contracted with Parabon Nanolabs to do the work. DNA extracted from a vaginal swab sperm fraction was sent to DNA Solutions for preparation of a SNP profile. The Fort Worth Police Department received Parabon's snapshot report on January 31st of 2018. The report stated that the suspect was white and that he had blue or green eyes with 98.3% confidence. The suspect had blonde or light brown hair with 98.4% confidence. He had few freckles. He was of almost entirely European ancestry, with 99.32% of his genome having European origins. The Fort Worth Police released three snapshot composite images to the public, showing the suspect at ages 25, 45, and 65. They culled through the case file and ruled out anyone in it who was a black or Hispanic male or someone with dark hair and brown eyes. 
None of the Fuller family recognized the man in the images, but Lee Fuller was hopeful, if practical, about the possibility of identifying the killer using this new technology. He told the Fort Worth Star Tribune, quote, I would like to get some kind of closure. I'm not expecting some kind of justice because realizing even if happy days you find someone, they've had a 35-year happy life. Is that justice? You've changed other people's lives and you've gotten away with it for 35 years, end quote. Detective O'Brien told me that the snapshot images generated hundreds of tips. Of them all, one in particular seemed really promising. Someone called in a name, a David A. The caller said that David lived in the area at the time of Julie's murder. He resembled the snapshot image, and the tipster alleged that David had had inappropriate contact with a child family member. All of these converging factors made David intriguing enough that Detective O'Brien felt it appropriate to request that the Georgia Bureau of Intelligence try to grab a DNA sample from David, who was living in the Peach State. The GBI followed David for two weeks and obtained a discarded cup and straw from him. The DNA comparison, however, was negative. It wasn't him. It was a good lead, but it put them right back in the same place where they started. It was time to ask Parabon to take the next step. Forensic genealogy, it was hoped, would identify the killer when three and a half decades of detective work would not. I have to tell you that I have virtually no information about the forensic genealogy process in this case. Although usually law enforcement and Parabon are able to share some details with me, in this case, I've been told that the forensic genealogy was very sensitive. I'll tell you what I do know. The top match unearthed by Cece when she entered the suspect's SNP profile into the open source databases was a person who had been adopted. This caused all sorts of complications in tracking down the top match's biological parents. Furthermore, a woman who Cece came to suspect was the suspect's mother, who did turn out to be his mother, was herself of unknown parentage. Records are unclear as to whether she was formally adopted or whether her name was changed or what. To this day, it's unknown who her mother, the suspect's maternal grandmother, was. Finally, making the genealogy process in this case even more complex and delicate, the suspect's ancestral tree exhibited a high degree of pedigree collapse. I can hear you all asking, what's pedigree collapse? I'm going to read a definition to you here so I can't get yelled at for messing it up. According to the International Society of Genetic Genealogy Wiki, Pedigree collapse describes how reproduction between two individuals who knowingly or unknowingly share an ancestor causes the family tree of their offspring to be smaller than it would otherwise be. Pedigree collapse is also referred to as loss of lineage. For example, the child of two first cousins has only six great-grandparents instead of the normal eight. This reduction in the number of ancestors is pedigree collapse. To give an extreme example, the maximum pedigree collapse of 50% within a single generation is caused by procreation between full siblings. Such children have only two different grandparents instead of the maximum four. Okay, so the suspect's tree was more concentrated than normal because some of his ancestral relatives had intermarried. And multiple adoptions punctuated the tree. At least one investigative avenue led down the wrong path. Nevertheless, the brilliant C.C. Moore was able to wade her way through the morass and provide the Fort Worth detectives with the name of a suspected half-sister of the suspect, whom she suggested could be requested to submit to reference testing. 
The woman cooperated, and once she entered her DNA into the open source database, Cece was able to confirm a potential suspect name. Parabon's report suggested that detectives look at James Francis McNichols Jr., the only son of James Francis McNichols Sr. and Dorothy Maxine Gibson. Once he was provided with this lead, Detective O'Brien noted that the name never appeared in the Julie Fuller case file. He wasn't an occupant of the Kensington Motel, and he wasn't a witness or a registered sex offender or a person of interest. But he was connected to the Arlington area from which Julie was abducted, and he had a record. Spoiler alert, it was him. Let's talk about our suspect. James Francis McNichols Jr. was born on January 18, 1952, in Port Arthur, Texas. His parents were James Francis McNichols Sr. and Dorothy Maxine Gibson. McNichols's paternal grandparents were Raymond Roy McNichols and Florence Bennett. His mother, Dorothy, was either adopted or raised under a name other than her birth name, so her parentage is murky. Dorothy and James Sr. were married in 1951. McNichols was born the next year in 52. The couple had a second son, Donnie, who died in infancy in 1953. That same year, Dorothy and James Sr. split. Dorothy eventually remarried, and so did James Sr. James Jr., who went by Jimmy, had at least six half-sisters from his parents' subsequent unions. We don't know all that much about James Francis McNichols Jr.'s life. I'll get into what little we do know in a bit. But James McNichols was long dead by the time Detective O'Brien received his name as a potential suspect. On Wednesday, January 28th of 2004, he died suddenly of a heart attack at his home in Maquoketa, Iowa. He was 52 years old. He was buried in Andrew Jackson Cemetery. Detective O'Brien was able to definitively identify James Francis McNichols Jr. as the killer of Julie Fuller through kinship testing, comparing his DNA profile to the profile obtained via a buckle swab of his biological daughter, who willingly cooperated with the identification. The test proved that her father was Julie's murderer. Just knowing was a huge relief. As Detective O'Brien said, quote, this is the one that has stuck with detectives for generations. He had the privilege of calling Julie's family to tell them the news. He told the Fort Worth Star Tribune that Colin, Lee, and Janet were all excited and emotional. He said, quote, I'm excited for the family. It's about the only thing you can offer the family on something so horrific to give them some closure. However, the detective noted, quote, I would have preferred him to be held responsible for what he did. Lee Fuller participated in a couple of interviews after he received the news that his sister's killer had been identified. He told Fox 4, quote, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe we were ever going to get to this. But he added, honestly, we're glad he's dead. He elaborated to the Fort Worth Star Tribune, quote, I'm glad he's dead. That was probably the best result versus having to go through another saga. What would the justice be, really, if he was still alive? I would want him dead, end quote. Cece Moore told the Mirror, quote, As a mother, it's horrendous for me to think of this family moving from England to start a new life, and it ends this way. It's devastating. This case really got to me. Okay, so what do we know about James Francis McNichols Jr.? McNichols was born in Texas, but was raised primarily in California. When his parents split before his second birthday, his father, James Sr., got custody. James Sr. remarried, and he and his wife had five daughters, whom I'm not naming. These are McNichols' younger half-sisters. 
Police interviewed one of McNichols' half-sisters. She was very young when McNichols was a regular part of her life, but she had a lot of information. Her father, James Sr., who was also McNichols' father, died in 1965, leaving behind a wife, five very young daughters, and a 13-year-old son from his former marriage. The wife, young Jimmy McNichols' stepmother, could not deal with her stepson, who was troubled from an early age. According to his half-sister, her mother had to work, and McNichols was left at home to supervise his young half-sisters. Some of his antics were seemingly normal teenage boy stuff. For example, he put one of his toddler sisters in a playpen with a lizard. But some of them were more concerning. He was mean-spirited. He made the girls play circus by standing in front of the garage door while he hurled knives at them. One time, one of the girls' arms got cut, and he told her to lie to their mother and tell her she fell. And then he hung a cat in the backyard. I'm not sure what incident precipitated his stepmother calling the police on the then 15-year-old Jimmy. It could have been the cat incident, or something even worse I'll get into in a bit. But Jimmy was removed from the home by the authorities and was sent to Texas, where his relatives lived. There he was placed at Cal Farley's Boys Ranch, an Amarillo area residential facility for at-risk youth that provides religious-based support services. Jimmy's young half-sisters didn't see him for several years. But after their mother left them, their grandparents brought them back to Texas, and their older brother Jimmy, who was in the Marines by this time, visited them at the children's home they were living in. I could not find anything about McNichols' military service, but for a while there, his half-sister said it seemed like his life was on the right track. He met a young woman from California. I'm calling her by her first initial, S. McNichols and S. got married in August 1975 in a Nevada wedding. The couple went on to have three daughters. The young couple brought their firstborn daughter to meet McNichols' half-sisters at the home of their aunt and uncle in 1978 in Arlington, Texas. Yes, Arlington, the same town from which Julie Fuller was abducted five years later. McNichols worked as a carpenter and also worked for a time for his uncle's stained glass business while he and his wife grew their family. And here's where it gets really interesting. McNichols and his wife couldn't afford to buy a house. Instead, they motel hopped. They lived at a number of motels in the Arlington area, including the Lester Motor Inn on West Division in Arlington, right down the street from the Kensington, where Julie was abducted. McNichols' family has verified that he was in the Arlington area from 1978 until sometime in the mid to late 80s. He was an alcoholic and smoked pot. One of his half-sisters told Detective O'Brien, quote, We know Jimmy was a mess. McNichols' wife, S., has refused to speak to investigators about her ex-husband, her daughter's father. But we know that S. picked up her three girls and left McNichols abruptly sometime around 1983, driving from Texas to California and staying there. Two of the daughters want nothing to do with their father's memory and will not talk. One of McNichols' daughters did speak with investigators, but she was just two years old when they left her father and moved to California, and she doesn't remember him at all. She heard over the years that he drank and had a temper. And there were whispers among the family members of sexual abuse of all three of the girls at the hands of their father. But some specific incident provoked her mother asked to up and leave McNichols and ensure that he never saw his daughters again. 
The family says that S loved her husband, Jimmy McNichols, and stayed with him through the motel living, the drinking, the anger issues, and who knows what else. There are no official reports of domestic violence in the McNichols' home. But S. always told her relatives that if he abused his girls, she would not stay. And, true to her word, she grabbed her daughters and left. She told the girls her father beat them, but as I said, there are inklings of sexual abuse. S. and McNichols never legally divorced, and, as mentioned, she has refrained from speaking with investigators. But when her adult daughters asked if she thought he could have done something like murder an 11-year-old girl, she said yes. There's more. According to McNichols' half-sister who spoke to investigators, she was told by two of her older sisters that Jimmy molested them when he was living with them as a teen boy. For all she knows, she herself was a victim but was too young to recall the abuse. This may have been the straw that broke the camel's back and caused McNichols' stepmother to take steps to rid her household of her stepson. So McNichols was said to have molested at least two of his five half-sisters and possibly did the same with his own children, although we have no proof of that. But it seems he may have had a penchant for prepubescent girls. It's worth noting that S. and the girls are believed to have left in 1983, around the time that McNichols abducted, raped, and killed 11-year-old Julie Fuller. McNichols' daughter, who spoke with Detective O'Brien, noted with regret that she felt that the photo of Julie Fuller bore a close resemblance to her and her sisters. So speaking of Julie, how did James McNichols come into contact with Julie Fuller? Well, we know from his half-sister that for years, he and his family lived in motels along the West Division Strip in Arlington. Quote, he was just living place to place, going from motel to motel, Detective O'Brien told the Fort Worth Star Tribune. And Detective O'Brien told me that they have documentation placing McNichols in Arlington in the area of the Kensington Motel in September 1983. This was just three months after Julie's death. At that time, McNichols was a witness in a criminal mischief incident. Sounds like he was hanging out with some bad seeds. It's not known whether he ever actually stayed at the Kensington or what he was possibly doing there on the day Julie was abducted on her short walk back from the dumpster. His name was not on the guest register at the Kensington when Julie was staying there. Perhaps he was there buying drugs from the meth heads in room 102. Again, we don't know. Investigators were never able to pinpoint McNichols' vehicle at the time, so we don't know whether he was driving the pickup truck or the station wagon that were seen by witnesses. We also don't know what his connection was, if any, to the Trinity River Bridge area where he dumped Julie. I suspect the original investigators were right, Julie was dead within a few hours, and McNichols just wanted to ditch her body as expeditiously as possible. If it's true that McNichols molested his own sisters and daughters, it gives us a little insight into his motive in abducting Julie. Detective O'Brien told the Fort Worth Star Tribune, quote, I think he just preyed on people he knew wouldn't say anything. The difference here is he knows this girl's going to say something, and that's where the death comes in, end quote. In other words, McNichols could intimidate his own little kids and siblings into silence. But if he left 11-year-old Julie alive, she would talk. O'Brien believes Julie's abduction, rape, and murder was a crime of opportunity, but that McNichols was on the prowl looking for a victim. We know from Julie's autopsy that some kind of lubricant was used on her vaginal area. That's not something this guy just happened to have in his glove box, I don't think. He took her with the intent to rape her. 
We have no idea how McNichols lured Julie into his vehicle, but police do believe that's what happened. Perhaps he had kids' car seats and toys in his car and didn't seem threatening. Perhaps he promised her a babysitting job. This is all rampant speculation. We just don't know. For all we know, he could have grabbed Julie and bodily shoved her into his car and sped off. Either way, he got extremely lucky that no one saw anything in daylight in the parking lot of a bustling motel on a busy roadway. Lee told the Fort Worth Star Tribune that he has racked his brains as to whether he ever saw McNichols around the motel, but the killer's face does not stand out in his memory. McNichols would have been 31 years old when he took Julie. He was dead at 52. What else did he do in those intervening 21 years? The answer is nothing he did jail time for, and nothing that would have landed him in CODIS that we know of. McNichols moved around quite a lot. There are records of him living in Illinois, Colorado, Iowa, and Oklahoma after he left Texas. He got a DUI a few years after Julie was killed. He was driving the vehicle of a girlfriend in the Fort Worth area at the time. He was arrested for an assault in 1995 and a domestic abuse assault in Iowa in the same year. He had a liquor possession charge in 1999 and a misdemeanor assault and disorderly conduct in 2001 in Colorado. When he died in Iowa in 2004, he was in a 17-year-long relationship with a woman, but investigators were unable to speak with her. I know the listeners will feel disappointed that we don't know more about James McNichols. I feel the same way. I want more answers. I wish his ex-wife, S, had been willing to talk to the investigators, but I understand why she's not comfortable doing so. I suspect that this guy left a trail of sexual assaults and sex crimes against children in his wake, and that he has many more unnamed victims. Was Julie his only murder? We don't know. There are no more cases in CODIS linked to McNichols, but as we all know, there are lots of missing children out there. And of course, he could have assaulted a victim without leaving DNA. For what it's worth, McNichols' half-sister told Detective O'Brien that she is not at all surprised that he turned out to have killed a young girl. He was troubled and an addict. She said she would not be surprised if he drank himself to death. Like me, she wishes he were alive so he could get what's coming to him. Julie Fuller's homicide was the first cold case solved by the Fort Worth Police Department with the use of forensic genealogy. Detective O'Brien told Fox 4, quote, I feel very certain this case would never have been solved. Especially with him being dead, there would have been no other way to have solved this case, end quote. After 36 years, Julie Fuller's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Thank you so much to Fort Worth Police Department Homicide Detective Thomas O'Brien for working with me on this case. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to DNA ID podcast.com 
You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID.